And go and get your Bibles out. We'll continue in worship uh, by the, uh, both the study and proclamation of God's Word. And uh, Mark 12, the end of Mark 12, we'll start in verse 35. And as you're turning there, as we continue in our sermon series uh, through the Gospel of Mark, who is this Jesus? Mark 12, starting in verse 35, we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 44 this morning. I want to begin our time with this statement. Okay, this is a statement of fact. You are living for a kingdom. The question isn't whether or not you're living for a kingdom. That's not in question. You and I and all of us are living for a kingdom. And so the question in front of us this morning isn't whether or not we're doing that. It's what kingdom am I living for? Am I living for the kingdom of self? Am I living for the kingdom of spouse? Am I living for the kingdom of family or career? I, there's no shortage of options in terms of kingdoms that we could live for. Uh, my heart, my hope for all of us is that not only would we say this, but it would actually be true of us that I'm living for the kingdom of God. Because where the text is going to take us this morning is it's going to put that question uh, of the kingdom, it's going to confront us, it's going to confront our lives and what kingdom it is that we're actually living for. And so eventually we're going to arrive at a place where we're going to be forced to respond as to whether or not we're living for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of self or some other kingdom. But the main idea, main point in terms of what I think God's word has for us here this morning is this, is that your response, my response, our response to Jesus as Lord must be one of sacrifice and commitment. Of course, the assumption in that is that you are in fact living for the kingdom of God. But if you're going to be about the kingdom, okay, if the whole of your life is going to be about the kingdom of God, then it's going to be about sacrifice. It's going to be about commitment. It's going to be about these things. And so let's go right to the text. Let's let God himself speak. <clears throat> Mark 12, starting in verse 35. I'm going to read aloud. encourage you to read along with me as I read this. Here's what God's word says. And keep in mind in the context, in the first 34 verses of, uh, actually all the way back into the latter part of Mark 11, Jesus and these various uh, conflicts or confrontations with the various religious leaders. And now Jesus is just going to teach. Tells us this in verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, and he quotes from Psalm 110 here, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, so Mark's saying, hey, at some point in time when he was teaching about this, here's another thing he said with respect to the scribes. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And then apparently after he had taught, verse 41 tells us he went and he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. It's actually not a penny. It's a, a, a lepta is what it is and it's the equivalent of eight minutes worth of work. Uh, so it's more than a penny but it's not worth a whole lot more than a penny. Okay, it's a very small amount. 
And in a moment, Jesus will tell us it's everything that she had. In verse 43, Jesus says this, He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Awesome, awesome text. I think before we go any further, it would be wise of us to stop, uh, to ask God uh, to come for his spirit to have the freedom to speak into your life and in my life and to do what God wants to do uh, within us. So why don't you join me as we pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we thank you, uh, God, for your word and we thank you for the instruction and the wisdom that you offer uh, to us through it. Uh, God, we thank you that you want to speak to us and we pray that uh, in this time that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. God, that we would surrender and humble, humble ourselves before uh, your Holy Spirit and allow your spirit to work within us. And so wherever we find ourselves in, in, in a place of prosperity or in poverty, in, in sickness or in health, God, whether, whether life is great or, or we're struggling to get by, would we submit ourselves to you this morning? Would we let your word of truth speak into us? And then, God, would you give us the courage to respond? God, as, as always, we pray for another church uh, in our area. I think of Sean Sloan and Heritage Christian Fellowship. I pray for Sean and for that body of believers that you would be at work within them. Uh, God, that you would minister uh, in and through that group of believers and that they too would be surrendered to you. God, as we think of our missionaries, I think about our uh, Randy and, and um, some of the Mexico team sharing about uh, the, their time uh, there. As we think of them and, th and that time, we pray that you'd have your hand upon rivers of mercy. For Pastor Julian, I know this week we're praying for uh, Colleen Boyd, and we pray that you would be at work in her life as well in the ministry that she has. And God, now we just pray that you would come and speak to us. God, would you minister to us? Would you uh, do the work that only you could do, and would we uh, humbly submit ourselves before you? Uh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, title of the message this morning is Living for the Kingdom of God. Living for the kingdom of God. And, and here's the reality. If, if you and I are going to live for the kingdom, uh, there, there's a few things that we got to get straight with respect to what that looks like. And so three things in the text this morning that I want us to focus our attention around with respect to living for the kingdom of God. And the first comes in verses 35 through 37. Here's, here's the point that uh, Mark is making through Jesus' teaching here. It's this. It's that you and I would recognize that Jesus is Lord. Now, for many of you, th there might not be more of a duh statement to make in church than, of course, Jesus is Lord. That's why we're here, because we believe that. But if we're going to talk about the kingdom, we've got to make sure we're clear on who the king actually is, and who is living for who, and who is surrendered to who, and who submits to who. And so let's just look at this here for a moment. Jesus is teaching in the temple, right? We're so much of chapter 12, this confrontation, this conflict, the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. And now done with that, and this is maybe a, um, a vicarious uh, conflict because Jesus is uh, referencing the scribes here. And he poses this first question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Most listeners in Jesus' day would have gone, um, you're kidding, right? 
We can go all over the Old Testament and begin to answer that question. We go to 2 Samuel 7 and talk about how God established his, uh, a permanent throne uh, through David's family. We go to Isaiah where he talks about the Messiah and Jesse's seed. We can go all over the prophets and this, this new David that's to come. What are you talking about, Jesus? The very least people are intrigued. Maybe they're going, where's he going with this? But look at where he goes. Verse 36, Jesus says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted passage in the Old Testament in the New Testament. Here's what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. There's a few things you've got to know about Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was written by David. David is the one who said this. And so if David is saying the Lord, and when David writes in Psalm 110, it's Yahweh, Right? God the Father said to my Lord, not to me, but to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's not, David's not talking about himself. He's talking about God the Father and he's talking about someone else who is apparently greater than David because he references him as my Lord. And David's reference here and then the... the, the, the um, Speaking of the right hand, right, the right hand being the position of the highest honor. Now David, in, in the, probably the purest sense with respect to one, uh, Psalm 110, is not res, referring to the Messiah as a deity, so to speak, though we know that's true. But what he's talking about here is there's a superiority of status. David can identify, <laughs> listen, someone who's better than me is coming. And so Jesus says, okay, how do the Christ say, that, or, or, or how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He quotes Psalm 110. At first they're like, okay, where are you going with this? Now here's the question that begins to make you think. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? If he's really Lord, how is he son? Because, right, son would imply subordination. It would imply inferiority. The son is not the king while the, while the father is still alive and ruling. He's only the prince. And so David is saying, hey, it's, it's backwards here. Or Jesus is saying with respect to this, it's, it, it's backwards here. Because David is still ruling, but he's talking about this other Lord. What's he saying? In the same way that Moses pointed to a greater one who would come, David is pointing to a greater one who would come. What Jesus is moving his audience toward is the reality that David is saying, someone better is coming. And I think further what Jesus is saying is, it's me. I'm the guy he was talking about. I'm the guy that he was referencing. I'm the one that you should pay attention to. I'm the one that's, that's, that's more, that's better, that, that's greater than David. He's pushing the fact that he is, in fact, the Lord. Now, two pieces to this that become prominent, both for the audience then and for you and I here this morning. Uh, first of all, this. Do you recognize that Jesus is Lord? Can you, at the very least, begin to intellectually assent to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord? That's not the finish line. That's the starting line. Because then what comes from that is comprehensive with respect to the application and implication of your life and of mine. Because here's the second question you and I have to wrestle with. Is based on the reality that Jesus is in fact the Lord, have you altered your life 
according to the truth that Jesus is Lord. It's one thing to say it. It's an entirely different thing to believe it because it requires complete surrender and submission to King Jesus. The implications for this are comprehensive in your life. Because if Jesus is the Lord, who's not? Tell me. Me. I'm not. You're not. We're not. No lords in the room that are visibly present. There's a Lord in the room. We just can't see him. See, to recognize that Jesus is Lord, we have to settle this first and foremost because as we proceed with these next two scenes or episodes, so to speak, it begins to frame what it is to live uh, for Jesus in a positive sense. Well, first, actually, we'll see in a negative sense what it isn't live, what it isn't to live for Jesus, and then uh, with the widow, what it is. But we must first settle this in our hearts and in our minds that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord that he does in fact rule and reign in my life and that I'm submitted and subjected to him. Once we've settled that, then we're ready to move on to what we see next. Now look at verses 38 through 40. And Jesus, in his teaching, uh, where he uses David and references that, now he begins to talk a little bit about the scribes. And notice he says this, in his teaching he said, beware. Anytime you see the word beware, that's a warning. Jesus is warning the audience, pay attention Listen up, perk up your ears, don't do this. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Here's the second thing with respect to living for the kingdom of God. We have to recognize that Jesus is Lord. We need to hear this warning against selfish living. You got to hear the warning against selfish living. Now, in a fuller sense, not only is this selfish living, but we'll see the scribes will actually use and exploit the kingdom for their own personal gain. And there's two specific aspects in the text that play out. One is their love of self that, that, that will play into their concern over their appearance. I want to look good. I want to look like I have it all together. Okay, can I just... Can we just cut through the bull and the junk and the garbage and so many Christians today play games in church? Quit acting like you got it together. You don't. If you did, you wouldn't need Jesus. So let me just help you out. No one in this room has it together, myself included. But see, we got to first come to the place where we're done playing the game of I have to look good because it's what these guys were doing here. And secondly... Not only is it this love of self tied to their appearance, but then there's this exploitation. What can I get from this? What can I take from this? How can I take the kingdom of God and exploit it for my own personal gain? That's disgusting, by the way. Which, ironically enough, is the exact opposite of what we saw just a few verses ago. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the opposite of that. It's to love yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to not love your neighbor as yourself. It's a warning of selfish, arrogant, proud living. Two things with respect to this. Here's the first in verses 38 and 39. It's a warning against love of self. Jesus is warning uh, the audience and by application you and I this morning against a love of self. This is nothing more than a form of pride or self-interest. 
Because these people love themselves more than they love the kingdom, and more importantly, more than they love the king. It's pride. Pride is nothing more than a form of worship where I exalt myself above all other things. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 1 when uh, he says that people will worship the creation instead of the creator. It's where we'll worship the creature. I'll worship myself over the creator. That's pride. It's a worship of self, ultimately, over a worship of God. Pride sees at its, at its heart, at its root, it sees my preference, my desire, my opinion, my rights as superior to others. They're more important than others. They carry more weight than others. That, that's, that's a proud heart. That's a proud person. Now, humility isn't the absence of preference or desire or opinion or feeling. It's that I make no effort to elevate my particular feelings or opinions or whatever it is above others. So you think of a marriage relationship. I'm thankful Becky and I, we agree on a lot of things, but we're like anybody, we don't agree on everything. And so we fight and argue and disagree just like every other married couple that's ever lived. And most of the time, I'm wrong and she's right. <laughs> every once in a while, I get thrown a bone. All right. Um, no, I'm not smart. I'm just telling the truth. It's just what it is. But that point, right, there, there could be a tendency for me, especially when we argue about theology, Becky, you haven't been to seminary. You don't do this professionally. So I'm right, you're wrong. That's pride. Humility isn't the absence of arguing over those things. It's just that, listen, your opinion and my opinion, they both matter. And so we're going to work through that. It's not that we, we may not even come to agreement, but there's equal standing with one another. This warning against self-love, this warning of pride. Now, now look at verse 38 and 39. There's, uh, Jesus gives some specific examples, and I think they speak to uh, various aspects of pride that show up. Come on, if we're honest, they show up in all of our lives at different times. And uh, so let's talk about them here for a moment. Three aspects of pride. Jesus mentions this first. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. The long flowing robe that was used in ceremonies, festivals, celebrations, it was meant to show off their prominent status in the religious community. It's the pride of status. And it's the heart, listen, listen, loved ones, it's the heart that says, I'm important. See, they wanted people to think that they were important. All of these issues of pride, I believe, cut at, the at, at various identity issues um, in where we think wrongly about ourselves and we think wrongly about God, usually elevating ourselves and minimizing God. But this one is, I'm important. I'm important. Because of my status. Because of the position I hold in our community, because of the position I hold societally, I'm important. Now, let me just ask you, do you have, loved one, do you have a healthy view of your status? Or do you have a sinful view? Sinful pride in your status? Here's a couple of questions to help you navigate whether or not that's true of you. Ask yourself this, am I overly concerned with what others think about me? Am I overly concerned with what others think about me? You lose, do you lose sleep at night? 
What's he going to think? What's she going to say? If I do this, how are they going to respond? You might have an unhealthy pride and status. Or maybe, maybe this question, um, right, that, that can consume our thinking. Of course, it's equally problematic to not care at all. Uh, but then maybe this, this really gets at the heart of this. Would I ever compromise the truth, my conviction, or my integrity to retain my current standing? Would you ever cut the corner to make sure that he or she knows that you're still blank? I'm a real stand-up guy, so I got to cut some corners to make sure they know I'm still a real stand-up guy. No, you're not. Not anymore. You just invalidated that. This pride and status that I, I'm so concerned about my social standing and where that falls and what people think. This unhealthy pride of how people would view us. Don't be concerned about what other people think about you. Be concerned about what God thinks about you. Don't worry about the rest. There are haters everywhere, and there's people who will flatter you everywhere. It goes both ways. An unhealthy pride and status. Notice this secondly. They like the long robes. They like the greetings in the marketplaces. Kind of similar, but, but distinct in some ways. This greeting. They love to be greeted in the public sphere. Oh, there's rabbi so-and-so. There's doctor so-and-so. There's professor so-and-so. What they wanted, and that's not wrong for that, but for these guys, it had an unhealthy grip on them. They had a pride in their worth. And it's the attitude that says, I'm respected. To the point that I'll demand respect. I'm going to prove that I should be respected. Their title was, was meant to show off that they were someone who was respected. And, and in this, it, in their mind, made them important. It's this pride and worth. You have great worth. Hear me. Look at me. Look at me right now. Everyone's eyes right here. You got to hear this. You have great worth. It is not found in what you do. It is not found in how successful you are as a parent or a spouse. It is not found in how successful you are in your career. It is found in the person of Jesus. That is where your worth is found. Quit looking for it somewhere else because it ain't there and you're not going to find it and you're going to be massively frustrated and disappointed. You have great worth but it's found in the person of Jesus. A couple of questions you might want to wrestle through with respect to pride and worth or the potential of that. Do you believe that your thoughts or opinion and your thoughts or opinions are more important than others? Because I'm blank, my opinion matters more. See, I'm, I'm worth more than you. My opinion carries more weight than yours. It's garbage. Here's another question. Do I have an expectation? Listen very carefully to this. Do I have an expectation that people will recognize or honor me? Do I have an expectation that if I do something, I expect you to honor me, to praise me, to acknowledge me, to recognize me for that? To tell me what a great job that is. Mike, if I go do this and people don't honor me, we're going to have issues. Yeah, we got issues. It's not with the people. It's with your lack of a servant's heart. That's what it is. You have pride in your worth. You have pride 
and it's tied to your worth in thinking that you deserve to be respected. Our worth is found in the person of Jesus. Here's the third one we see here. It's these final two, and really these are almost the same thing, just in different social settings. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at the feast. These positions of prominence, it almost feels like they, 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 they expect or deserve, hey, that's my seat. That's where I get to sit because I'm a big deal. It's pride and deserving. And it's the heart that says, I'm entitled. It's the attitude that I'm entitled, I deserve this. <laughs> now, can we, can we just be so unmistakably honest about when we're going to speak from a spiritual perspective and using the word deserve? Let me, let me just, let me, I'll, give you, I'll give you a crack at it. One word, one word, when we're talking spiritually, what is it that you and I deserve? Go ahead and shout it out. Hell, okay, you're on it, right? That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. That is the culmination of the work of my life. If you're like, hey, man, that's really harsh. Okay, judgment, wrath, damnation, destruction. Didn't really soften it. That's the point. It's what we deserve. It's because of the sinfulness inside of us. It's what we deserve. Now, now for those of us who are, who are found in Jesus, it will not be anything close to what we experience. But we got a real issue with entitlement in our country. Now, hold on, I'm not done. Because a lot of us are like, yeah, we got big issues and all this stuff. We got real issues with entitlement in the church. We are equally guilty. And we talk about demanding and deserving and what God owes us and, and what, loved ones, God owes you eternal damnation. That's what he owes us. And the mere fact that you and I are living and breathing right now and not being crushed under a perpetual weight for all of eternity is a means of his grace. This pride of entitlement. Ugh. Here's a couple questions to ask yourself. This, this first one was really hard for me. I'll just be honest. I really struggled with this one this week. Almost pulled it out of the message because I don't want to have to deal with it. All right? Do I find myself angry when I don't get what I want? Yep. I do. And it's wrong. It's the pride of entitlement inside of me. That's why I hated it because it was so confrontive. How about this one? Do I find myself frustrated if I'm not given preferential treatment? Yeah, you got to play by the rules too. We all do. Let us not, let us not simply love ourselves. Let us not simply pursue a pride of ourselves. Not as, let us not think wrongly of this, right, this appearance. And that's what these guys were after here is this appearance of looking good and Jesus is warning, warning, warning. This is a love of self. Then notice in verse 40, we see a warning against the exploitation of others. See, when, when, you, when you don't see yourself rightly, you're not going to see anyone else rightly either. And um, 
So when you have pride in yourself, you think of yourself greater than you are, and you think of less than those around you. And yet, uh, what Philippians 2, amongst other places in the scriptures, tells us is that we're to consider others as more important than ourselves. Which is the inverse of what the religious leaders uh, were doing here. Right? That's the biblical response, is Philippians 2, is to consider others more important than yourself. These guys, not so much. They think they're better. They think they're more important. They, they think they deserve this. And so people, other people, simply become a means to an end. Think about it. Other people created in the very same image of God that they were created in, or that you and I were created in, become nothing more than an object in the pursuit of satisfying my particular desire. We objectify other people who share in the same image of God and we exploit them in the process. Notice, first of all, that they exploit the vulnerable. I mean, this is the, the pinnacle of selfish living right here. Who devour widows' houses. They devoured widows' houses. What, what does he mean by this? We don't know entirely. What is most likely that Jesus is referencing here is, is that these guys, right, the, the scribes who really had everything, most of them were wealthy, uh, most of them had high prominent standings in society. Uh, they were comfortable in life and they would exploit widows, widows who had nothing. And what they would do is they would use these widows and what little tiny bit of the estate that they had left when their husband had died. And they would use their religious standing to exploit it to get as much as they could personally for themselves. And then once they had eaten up whatever resource was there, they would simply dump that widow and move on to the next exploitation. I mean, that, you can't say it any other way. It's an exploitation of these widows. I mean, it's crazy, right? Those who find themselves, who tend to find themselves needing the most protection are usually the first to be exploited. And our society is no different. That's why God's word is unflinchingly firm about caring for orphans and widows. Here, here's just a few of a number of places that you could go in the scriptures with respect to the vulnerable. And often in the scriptures, the vulnerable are portrayed as orphans and widows. James 1 tells us this, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God. You want pure religion? Here it is. Visit the widow and orphan, or visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That doesn't mean show up and drink a cup of tea and go home. It means you walk with them through life. You care for them, you protect them, you watch over them. Isaiah 1 tells us this, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. How do we do that, Isaiah? Here's how. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Two people that are rarely, rarely find themselves with an advocate. Psalm 68 tells us, the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And then this this was nothing short of terrifying this week when I was reading it. Here's Exodus 22, God speaking. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Listen very carefully to what God says next. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Go read it. Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24. God's saying, you want to do this? I will kill you for this. And ironically enough, your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You mistreat them, I will deal with you and I will put your family in that same position. Starting to get a sense of how God feels about the vulnerable, right? And, and not standing for this. 
Okay, so who are the vulnerable in our day? Orphans, widows, who else? Tell me, come on, shout out. Children, who else? Unborn. Right, disabled, elderly. It's people who don't have a voice for themselves. It's the marginalized, it's the outcast, it's the people put to the side. I mean, the unborn literally don't have a voice. Except for you and I. I was thinking about human trafficking this week. I, I hope you, you don't live in this ignorant slumber thinking that slavery is something that is a part of the human race past. It's happening all over the place. In fact, if you want a great read on this, the book is a little bit older. It's a little bit dated. It's probably 10 years old. It's called Disposable People. Slavery is happening all over the place. You see literally girls, little girls abducted unknowingly sold by their parents because some, some manipulative jerk trying to turn a quick buck and spit up and chewed out before they're 18 years old in the sex industry. Who's going to stand up and say something? Who's going to protect? Who's going to care for? Who's going to defend? It's not simply like, hey, don't exploit. I think it look a number of different ways for us can't be silent. We can't turn a blind eye. Well, it's, you know, it's not my daughter. But what if it was? I'm a little girl. When I was living in Arizona, there's a mall in an um, upper, uh, upper middle class neighborhood of the Phoenix area, Arizona Mills Mall. And one of my uh, seminary professors was very, very much involved in um, the, the human trafficking, sex industry, things of that nature. And Arizona Mills Mall, it's an upper middle class area, upper cl- middle class mall, was the number one place where, where tweens and teenage girls were abducted and ended up in the sex industry for the country. You can't inoculate yourself from this stuff. And as believers, here's the deal. You, you, you can be active in exploitation like the religious leaders were. You can also be passive in exploitation. And for us to sit here, for us to do nothing, for us to go, well, no, we're not, you, you, one of us won't solve the whole problem, but we also can't sit by silently because it makes us indistinguishable from these guys where we would exploit the vulnerable. God help us, God help us that we would have God's heart on this issue. They exploit others and really they'll stop at no end because look at this, I think they'll go so far as to even exploiting God. Who devour widows' houses, we're gonna chew you up and spit you out and for a pretense, that word there literally means a pretend cause I'm going to make long prayers. These guys, right, these are guys who supposedly have committed the whole of their life to following God and doing the very things that God has called them to do. And they're taking one of the best gifts that God gives to us, prayer, that I can communicate and fellowship and commune with the living God of the universe. And they take one of the best gifts of God and they manipulate and exploit it for their own personal gain. Because they are not really interested in praying. They're not interested in communicating with God or being with him. They are using it as a cover to to uphold this appearance so that I can manipulate and exploit the next person. And so they exploit others. And in the process, I also believe they move so far as to exploit God. And that is sick and disgusting. 
Loved one, are you using God or are you using the gifts of God to get something for yourself? If so, you are exploiting him. And I think it's worth noting that what Jesus says next would apply to you. They will receive the greater condemnation. You have been warned. It is a warning of selfish living. Do I love myself? Um, do, do I love myself in a manner that I will live in a sinful, selfish way or have I moved to a place where I will not exploit others, I will not exploit God, but I will be willing to be used by God because it's about his kingdom, not mine. A warning of selfish living. Here's the final thing. We look at this widow in verses 41 to 44 and I just wrote this down. It's an example of kingdom living. It's an example of kingdom living. And so Jesus finish, finishes teaching and he sits down opposite the treasury and they have no, probably a number of these boxes of different parts of the temple and, and the people would come and they would bring their offerings and uh, their day was not uncommon as our day where um, uh, larger coins were worth more, smaller coins were worth less. And so he tells us, look at what he says. Many rich people put in large sums so they would walk up to this treasury. Clink, 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 clink. Clink, 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 clink. Clink, 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 clink. Like loud, right? Big coins, big giving. And then this widow. We don't know anything about her outside of the fact that she's poor and she's a widow. And she put in two small copper coins. So clink, 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 clink. Clink, clink. Almost indistinguishable. Maybe enough to people are like, why did it stop? Right? What happened? And Jesus says this, right? He calls his disciples and he's like, hey, you got to get this. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. She put in, what do you mean? You can't put in any less. That's about as, as, as small as it gets. No, no, no. She put in more. Okay, why Jesus? Verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's an example of kingdom living. Two things, two things to make note of here. First of all, make note of this. This is an example of sacrifice. She literally gave all that she had. Now you might, not, you might say, well, it really wasn't that much. When you don't have much, everything's everything. I don't care how much it is. Everything's everything. She gave it all. I might point out, unlike the religious leaders who hoarded for themselves, she took what little she had and she said, God, it's yours. See, I, lo I loved this quote that I came across in one of the commentaries as I was studying this week and speaking to this widow and her sacrifice. They said, those that give this way have come to recognize that all their resources are God's. I had a conversation with a gentleman this morning, a couple hours before church, and um, we were talking about money a little bit, and they just made the comment. They said, you know, once I came to the realization in my life that I was no longer an owner, but I was simply a steward, all my money problems went away. Not that they were always wealthy, not that it was always easy, but man, it sure did change the outlook. It's true. See, she recognizes this. She's like the church in Macedonia that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8 where they're in their poverty. Man, they had nothing and they're providing for a church who was in, a, who in far better shape or should have been in far better shape than they were. 
See, to give from a position of poverty is to have our eyes on the prize of eternity. Kingdom living brings with it the reality of sacrifice. That we live our lives uh, asking the question, not God, what will you do for me? But God, what can I do for you? Where are you calling me to lay down? Where are you calling me to sacrifice? What are you calling me to give up? What are you calling me to change? What, what, what are you calling to walk away from? What am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to give for the kingdom? And here's this. If I found myself in severe poverty, could I still give? Would I still give? And what would my heart be like as I gave? This woman is an example of sacrifice. Notice this. Secondly, this woman is also an example of commitment. I mean, consider her situation. She's, her, her husband's gone. He's dead. Um, which at that point in time, for most widows, meant that you would spend the rest of your remaining days in an, in, uh, on the edge or in abject poverty. Every single day would be a struggle to make ends meet. We don't know how old she is. Maybe she was older in life and uh, her life was drawing uh, near to an end. Maybe she had decades in front of her of this difficult existence in front of her. What we know is she's no longer married. She has nothing. Uh, financially, she has nothing. She's alone. And yet, she's still faithful. She's still at the temple. She's still giving. She's still committed. Now, throughout Mark's gospel, he speaks over and over and over again about the cost of discipleship. Probably the pinnacle passage is Mark 8, where he talks about if anyone would be my disciple, they must take up their cross and follow me. It's an exacting and demanding cost. It requires commitment. What's your commitment to Jesus? 60%, 70%, hey, I'm 97% in. This widow literally gave everything. She was 100% committed. Are you all in? Or are you hedging? I'll give you this much, but I'm going to hold on to this. That way, if you fail me, I've still got this to fall back on. Or nope, I'm all in. Where are you at? See, because the kingdom, living for the kingdom will move us to a place where complete commitment to Jesus in every aspect of our life becomes both the goal of our life and the whole of our life. Now, so let me finish where we started. Our response to Jesus as Lord must be one of sacrifice and commitment. If you're going to live for the kingdom, that's what it will entail and that is what is required of you and I. We are living for a kingdom. Each and every person in this room, you are living for a kingdom. Whose kingdom are you living for? Let's pray.